Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of PwC's Accounting and Reporting Podcast Series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's hottest accounting issues. I'm your host, Heather Horn, a partner in our national office. As many companies have just completed initial implementation of the new leasing standard, we thought we'd turn our attention to some of the questions that we've received related to day two accounting for leases. Joining me today is Andreas Ohl, a partner in our national office and a specialist in transaction services and valuations. So Andreas, thanks for being here today. I know by now most calendar and public companies will have adopted the new leasing standard, which means they're turning their attention to day two accounting issues. And in particular, you know, there have been a lot of questions around accounting for the new right of use asset recorded for operating leases. Can you give us some background on that issue? Sure. One of the uh, first things you need to think about day two for right of use asset is under what impairment model will it be tested? And so what the leasing standard does is it sends you to the long-lived asset impairment standard, ASC 360, which has been out there for a very long time, that tells you how to test long-lived assets for impairment. Okay, so then that's helpful background. What's the first thing that companies should be thinking about then? So the first thing you maybe have to think about is when you have a single lease agreement, is that actually one lease component or is it multiple lease components? Okay, so then what's an example of that? So say, for example, you had a single lease to lease a corporate campus that consists of multiple buildings and parking lots and things like that. So there's a question, is that one lease component which you test impairment? So very rarely do you test impairment at the individual asset level because the way asset, the concept of an asset group works is it's the lowest level at which you have sort of independent cash flows. And that's rarely going to be for an individual asset. It's normally going to be a collection of assets that work together in order to generate a cash flow, and you'd see how a leased asset would just be part of that larger um, collection. Okay, but wait. So what you're saying, though, is first you take your lease asset. You say, does it have different components? And then those different components potentially could be in different asset groups, which are made up of perhaps the component you allocated and then other items. Right. So if you go back to my example of the campus where I talked about how perhaps you have five buildings on one side that are used for research and development, well, perhaps that research and development asset group includes not only those five buildings, but it may also include equipment. It may also include some intangibles that are coming out of the research and development. And so that may be an asset group that may be separate from another part of the campus Mm. that has... um, I don't know, administration, or maybe there's even uh, some sales and marketing or accounting, yes. So those might be in in separate asset groups, even though they're covered by a single lease agreement. Okay, so then, now I know my asset group, what are the implications of the new lease standard? Well, so I guess the the first thing is, we never really talked about impairment of, uh, of leases before, unless you were sort of exiting one. Now, uh, a right of use asset could be impaired because maybe there's nothing wrong with the lease itself, but maybe it's part of a broader asset group that's impaired. And even though the lease itself is fine, it could be on market terms and be completely a commercially viable um, contract. 
But if it's part of a broader asset group, such as my R&D example, where maybe something goes very wrong with a major R&D project, suddenly maybe that asset group is impaired. And if it is, that would have an impact on all of the assets in that asset group in terms of having an impairment charge allocated out, not just the maybe the R&D intangible that is the, the trigger of, of the impairment. It, it also just means that even if there's something wrong with the lease, that right-of-use asset might not be impaired if it's part of a broader asset group, and the broader asset group as a whole is still fine. You know, it meets the, uh, the criteria for not being impaired under ASC 360. So then in the circumstance that you were talking about that's part of this R&D asset group, let's say they didn't get approval or something else, so now there's an overall impairment of that group, then what you're saying is a portion of that impairment could be allocated to your lease asset. It, it would be. Even if you know exactly which asset in the asset group is triggering the, triggered the impairment and where the impairment economically resides, the way the model works is when there's an impairment of the asset group, that impairment charge gets allocated to all of the long-lived assets in that, in that asset group. The only real restriction on that is you can't write assets individually down below their, their fair value. Okay. So the concept kind of is if you have a forklift inside a asset group that's performing very poorly and you have the same model forklift in an asset group that's doing very well, you can't write one to a lower value than what you could sell a forklift to somebody else for. So the forklift is sort of agnostic to the fact that it's in a struggling asset group. Right, That's or kind of the idea. Right, so or in the case of our lease, I guess what you're saying is you would look at the fair value of our lease and you wouldn't write it down right. below that. It would be the same concept. If I was leasing the forklift or some other, I'll call right. it, you know, generic asset that is not, you know, specific to that uh, asset group you wouldn't say that that is worth less than it would be worth if it was in the hands of a successful asset group. So while you do allocate losses, impairment losses, to all asset, long-lived assets in the asset group, there is this limit on how much you can allocate to assets that have a sort of a readily determinable fair value. Okay, so Andreas, um, that's helpful. Is there anything else then that people should think about in determining their asset group or what goes in the asset group? There, there certainly is. So, so far we've only talked about the, the right of use asset, but obviously under the, the new lease model, there's two pieces to the, uh, the, the change to the balance sheet. You've got the asset and then there's obviously the lease liability. So the question arises, does the lease liability come into the asset group as well? And there, there's a, basically a policy choice to either include the, the lease liability from an operating lease or, or not include the operating lease, lease liability. The key thing, though, is similar to other concepts in, uh, in ASC 360, is that if you include the operating lease liability and therefore you're reducing the carrying value of the asset group, you also need to include the lease payment in the cash flow. So you're trying to do apples to apples on Conversely, if you're excluding the liability sort of by analogy to what you do for finance leases or what we historically did for, for capital leases, which is that debt is generally not included in, a, uh, in an asset group, then uh, similarly you would uh, exclude the lease 
payment from the uh, from the cash flows. And then that goes for both the interest and principal portion. Can you pick and choose? Yeah, there, there's another policy choice there in terms of whether you include the entire rent payment or do you just include the uh, the principal piece and, and leave interest out. Sort of again an analogy to uh, that it's sort of uh, like that. sort of a debt model. So you're saying though the same rule would apply that basically if you include both pieces, you include all the payments. If you only include part of it, you include part of the payments. Is that's that right. A fair point. Okay. So that's very helpful. So then, Andreas, why don't we move on then? We have our lease on the books. We figured out our asset group, decided if we should include the liability or not. And now there's a trigger. So what are, we, what are some of the considerations when we start thinking about impairment? So the first thing that's important is it is a trigger-based test. So unlike Goodwill and some other intangibles where you have to test annually, long-lived assets are tested only when there's a trigger. And the reason that's important is because your right-of-use asset, for example, could be a very small part of a larger asset group, which means on the one hand, there could be nothing wrong with the, the right-of-use asset and you still have a trigger because something's going on with the rest of the asset group, or the other way around, there could be an issue with the lease where you think, hey, this lease is now way off market and it would be impaired if I looked at it in isolation, but because it's part of a much larger asset group and that asset group's fine, I don't actually have a uh, triggering event, much less a uh, an impairment. So once you've determined that there is, in fact, a triggering event, then you actually apply the uh, the model in ASC 360, and it is a, a two-step test. So the first part is this so-called recoverability test where you schedule out undiscounted cash flows and compare that to the carrying value. And then um, that is sort of a in-current use model, right? So you don't add expansionary CapEx. It's just sort of continuing to run what you have currently in place. And so that often has some, I'll call it entity-specific type assumptions built into it. If you fail step one, then you go on to step two. And step two, you actually determine the fair value of the asset group and compare it to the carrying value. And fair value is fair value as it is in other areas of gap. So that's a market participant concept. So your cash flows that you use in step one and step two could, in fact, be different. Well, and they're undiscounted in step one, and then step two, it is whatever the fair value is, right? It's, it's discounted. Right. But on, so obviously discounting will reduce the value, but on the other hand, you will have the ability to say, hey, if a market participant would expand this this operation, which you know, you have to reconcile that with the fact that it's you are somewhat impaired. Trouble. Yeah. Yes. Um, why? Why would a market participant be able to do better? Right. So there's always that tension there that you have to uh, work through. But yes, there's things that would make cause the fair value potentially be the higher or lower than the uh, than the recoverable um, amount. So there's a number of questions then that come up in terms of, well, what goes into the cash flows? I think one of the most important things to realize is that you need to include variable lease payments, the expected amount in both step one and step two, even though they may not be reflected in the right of use asset or in the uh, lease liability because of the thresholds that are in the lease standard around inclusion of variable payments in uh, the amounts that are booked on the balance sheet. But in a cash flow model, 
certainly in a fair value model, you would uh, include the market participants' expectations of, uh, of what the variable rent payments would be. But even in the undiscounted test, you would have variable payments in there. So that's an interesting point because we're into this whole conversation because the right-of-use asset that's on our books that doesn't include these payments. But what you're saying is if you get into a trigger, now you're looking at impairment, then it's a different model that you're using. to. It's not following necessarily what's an 842. It's saying, okay, variable payments would be included here. Right, because what, the purpose of the test is, is different, right? You're trying to see if there's an economic impairment. And so if you imagine a retailer where... You know, maybe a large portion of the rent expense is a function of retail sales, and the the fixed or the base amount might be very small. If you only, and that would be a particularly large portion of the expenses or cash flows of a a retail outlet, you would be in a position if you didn't include the variable rents of missing a large share of the economics of that uh, of that retail operation, and maybe not get the you know, an economic, the uh, sound answer if you uh, left that out. Right. So it's similar to then other things in your impairment testing. You make reasonable assumptions and then you go from there. That's right. So uh, an- another question that's come up is you can certainly have negative cash flows when you're dealing with an asset group and you do still apply the model then because it's possible that you have a situation where the, uh, the, the the cash flows could be more negative than than the carrying value. So you could have a negative carrying value of an asset group, and it's possible the cash flows are more negative. That's different than how we think about reporting units. And, and the reason for that is, in most cases, reporting units tend to be larger and be comprised of legal entities, whereas an asset group could very often not be a legal entity. And the reason that's important is if you're an equity holder in a legal entity, you do have the legal right to sort of walk away. And that's why equity is almost never worth zero because you basically cap your losses at at zero. Or it's never worth less than zero. Sorry, never worth less than zero. That's right. So, Oh, but then in this case, because you have the obligations, it could be less than zero. That's right, because an asset group often is not a legal entity, and therefore you can't, there's not a corporate veil that you can stand behind that sort of caps your losses at, uh, at zero. And that's why you could often have a situation where the carrying value of an asset group or the cash flows related to an asset group could, in fact, be negative. So that it's, we So then just, in that circumstance, you just write all your assets down to... Zero? Well, again, we have my, my forklift example, right, where you can't write it down to less than its uh, fair value. So what will often happen in that scenario is that there are the assets that are truly impaired, the ones that are very specific to that asset group, they may get written all the way down to zero or, I guess, in theory, their, their salvage value, which may be de minimis. But then you'll have other assets in there that are more generic, like my forklift, that you know you can move that to you can move to another and, asset group. Yeah. You could sell. You can do other things too. And again, it wouldn't be impaired all the way down to zero just because it was currently. It's not tainted by the fact that it was used in a in troubled asset, asset group. group. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. 
Okay, so we, we talked about triggers in the beginning because obviously ASC 360 is a trigger-based test. The, the other thing just to think about is once you've had a trigger and you've landed an impairment is uh, you, you should think about is this potentially a trigger to reassess the, the lease under 842. Now, the criteria for trigger in 842 and the criteria for a trigger under 360, they're quite different. So it is possible that you have a trigger under 360 and not 842, but it's certainly something you should, uh, you should think about. Okay, and that, I would assume, is even more important if the right-of-use asset is a very important part of your asset group versus potentially if it's a very small part, even if you look at your trigger under 842, you may not get there because it was triggered for another reason. That's right. The more the trigger under 360 had something to do with the lease, the more likely it is that uh, there's an 842, there's trigger, an 842 so. impact. That's right. Okay. All right. That's, that's helpful. So then, Andres, anything else that people should be thinking about as they're looking at the right-of-use assets and impairment? Sure. So a, a common issue that's come up in practice over the years with ASC 360 is I have a trigger but I don't have an impairment, am I done? And the answer is no. In that circumstance, you still have to think about whether those economic factors that caused you to have a trigger is an indicator that you need to revisit the useful life of some of the assets in the, in the asset group. And, you know, in the case of uh, an asset group that now contains a right-of-use asset, that would be the same thing the same consideration. So, you know, in our view, the the useful life of long-lived assets should be reassessed whenever there's events or circumstances that, you know, that would indicate that a revision to the useful life is warranted. And anytime you have a trigger for the asset group, that's likely one of those those circumstances. So then potentially you could conclude you're going to keep using it, but maybe for not as long or for longer, or there just could be some change that you are making to your useful life? That's right. It's almost always shorter, okay. though, that Fair point, fair point. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, okay, so Andrea's very helpful. Definitely um, very complex. Um, some of this sounds like it can get complex very quickly to think about. So if I'm listening to this, I've adopted 842, but impairment has not been top of mind, is thinking through my asset groups and um, some of these considerations, something I need to do right now as part of my first quarter adoption, or what do we think about timing? So I think in terms of the asset groups, it's, it would be a useful exercise to make sure you understand what your asset groups are, particularly if you haven't had any triggers in a very long time, where whatever you determined your asset groups to have been way back when, it may, things may have changed in your business such that you define it uh, differently today. And I think that's important just because it's always good to have that exercise behind you and not have to deal with that in the same quarter that you're dealing with all the other things we discussed. It's also a little easier to get your head around whether you do or don't have a trigger when you have a better sense for at what level would that assessment be uh, be occurring. So I would definitely encourage people to take a fresh look at their 
asset group um, assessment, even if they don't think that something is rising to the level of a trigger in the uh, in the first quarter. Yeah, and even these policy choices sounds like if you're actually in the midst of dealing with a trigger, trying to make all these decisions at the same time and figure out your asset groups and all of this, just going to add to the complexity of working through that. That's right, because whenever you have a trigger, you need to resolve all of these things in that quarter. It's unlike business combinations where you have some period of time up to a year to finalize everything, this all needs to happen in the quarter in which the uh, the trigger occurs. Right. And or unlike Goodwill where you know it's coming on a regular basis. And so, okay. That's right. Okay, good. Andre, it's very helpful. Thanks so much for joining us today. Very helpful discussion. And to our listeners, I hope you've been as interested as I was in Andreas's insights about right-of-use asset impairment. Check out our podcast page at cfodirect.com for more information and links to further resources. I also hope you'll join me here again next week as I interview Diane Howell to discuss five things you need to know about non-GAAP reporting. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your content. You can also find me at heather.horn at pwc.com. I'm always interested in your ideas, thoughts, and suggestions for future episodes. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.